This is a late night science. Today, with your hosts, Dr. Axel Schumacher and Dr. Daryl Baker. Our guest today, a famous geneticist and molecular engineer, studied at Duke University, now a professor at Harvard Medical School, co-founder of the Health Network. Who successfully sequenced mammoth DNA. He helped initiate the Human Genome Project and now works on age reversal. Oh. The father of genome sequencing, George Church. It's you. How are you doing? Huh? Look, I'm just polishing some fossils. Have a closer look at this beautiful column of Orthoceros. <laughs> They're extinct now. They're also called straight shelled cephalopods. Striking creatures. They rest inside of a dark limestone here. You can see this here, frozen in time. I mean, over millions of years, their shells, yeah, these ones, they're turned into calcite and fossilized. This one, this one was found in Africa. But of course, when those animals lived, well, there was no continent really called Africa. They're really old. I mean, really old. Computer, do we have something on uh, this one? Yes, I have. Orthoceras are dated to the lower Ordovician to Triassic ages, 500 to 190 million years ago. These specimens are estimated from a time 420 million years ago. Wow. That was many million years before even the first dinosaurs appeared. Correct. At that time, the Earth was mostly covered in water. The animals lived inside of their shells, had tentacles they could use to grab food. They had a soft squid-like body. Unlike many crabs who leave their small shells to grow bigger ones, an orthoceer didn't have to go anywhere. It simply grew its shell bigger. It did this by creating a new dividing wall inside the shell called a scepter. Today, you can see the scepters separated by lines in the fossil. Scientists can tell the age of the orthoceras by looking at how many lines there are. Parts of the body were inside a tube that runs the entire length of the shell through each of the chambers. Once filled with water, the animal could force the water out, propelling itself backward with a kind of jet propulsion. They were the ancestors for today's Nautilus family. That includes uh, octopus, squid, and cuttlefish. But they went extinct around the time of the dinosaurs. 
65 million years ago. I think most of us would agree that it really sucks to get extinct. I wonder if future scientists, many million years into the future, will find our human remains in similar stones. <sighs> I guess aging and death is a physical process that will always be with us, although nobody really wants to die, at least not too early. You remember Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher and polymath? He talked about this already in his book, The Anima on the Soul. He speaks of the vital principle or the distinct characteristics of living beings in contrast to inanimate matter, like this Aristotle contemplated the question, what is life and how can it be maintained? And whether death can be avoided, can we live longer? The question is, can we learn something from the animal world and extinct species to help us survive? Huh? Aristotle carefully investigated the possible causes of longevity and mortality. For example, he compared the lifespans of uh, various animals and plants, various lifestyles and environmental conditions. Another Greek philosopher, prodigious physician Galen and his treatise Hygiene, written around the year 175, framed aging as a natural process that can be eased or even delayed by preventive measures such as a diet. He wrote his books at the peak of his career as physician to the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Galen thought of aging holistically and recognized that a person's aging path is highly individual with a wide range of possible outcomes. He developed treatments based on herbs and spices, which he administered to fellow doctors for verification. So in some ways, he was one of the inventors of modern medicine. Ah, yeah. I mean, generally, advice on uh, how to stay healthy during aging should not be based on opinions and traditions, but on scientific evidence. Yes, maybe we can learn from extinct species. Huh. Maybe not as old as this one, because uh, there's nothing we can extract here on uh, molecules from this. I mean genetic material and so on. But what about mammoths and uh, Neanderthals? I mean, it should be possible to extract DNA from them, at least few fragments. I should discuss this with someone. Someone who's actually researching aging and age reversal. Yeah. 
Oh, I know. Let's have a chat with my good old colleague, Professor George Church. Computer, do we have anything on uh, George? George is professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and professor of health sciences and technology at Harvard and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. George is widely recognized for his innovative contributions to genomic science and his many pioneering contributions to chemistry and biomedicine. In 1984, he developed the first direct genomic sequencing method, which resulted in the first genome sequence. He helped initiate the Human Genome Project and the Personal Genome Project in 2005. George invented the broadly applied concepts of molecular multiplexing and tags, homologous recombination methods, and array DNA synthesizers. In 2015, Church and his research team at Harvard successfully copied some woolly mammoth genes into the genome of an Asian elephant. Perfect. That's our man. <laughs> Let's go. Welcome, welcome, George Church. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> great to have you here on our podcast for several reasons. Because mm -hmm. obviously, in the in the science field, in the genetics uh, vertical, you are a legend already, and I'm sure you will do so much more in the future. So much we can also work together. Because what people don't know. You joined Shivom, which is also my company, and we will work a little bit together on making great things in science, uh, like really doing the next level thing. So welcome on, on Shivom and welcome on the podcast. Yes, thank you, George. Yeah, so um, people who do not know you, and I guess that probably there is no one out there, especially listening to the podcast, uh, like in, in, in a few sentences. So um, what is your current job there? Where, where are you sitting? And um, yeah, what, what are you currently, so, what's your hottest project? So I'm a professor uh, at Harvard and MIT, specializing in biotechnology development, including reading and writing and editing of DNA and and anything that you can do with DNA, ranging from um, information encoding all the way up to um, or organ transplants and ecosystems. Fantastic, fantastic. So let's jump right in. So one topic I, I, I really would love to discuss with you because uh, I have also background in uh, longevity, aging, so I worked on uh, uh, late onset Alzheimer's disease and frontal dementia before. And I know you are also fascinated by these topics working on specifically age reversal. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about what this is about? What is the fascination about age reversal and what are you working on? So um, Aging affects almost every source of human morbidity and mortality. Maybe, it, maybe it's not the only influencer, but it's a, it, it, is, it influences all kinds of things, um, ranging from COVID-19, where there's a huge age effect, to mm. even falling, probability of falling down or the probability of getting up afterwards. That's all age-related. 
Um, um, so then you have a choice between longevity and aging reversal. The problem with longevity is it takes decades to prove your point to the FDA, EMA, whatever uh, organizations, um, and to do the experiments, the clinical trials. Yeah, you trials. Will run the clinical trials over 100 exactly. years, okay. which is okay. probably or even Or even difficult. 10 is, uh, 20 is prohibitive. Yeah. Uh, but with aging reversal, you can see, you can see effects um, in weeks. Uh, yeah. And that, and that's, and uh, that's the goal. So uh, it could, it also, a third reason is it has a um, strong, um, possibility of being something that we all need. Um, certainly we all do die of aging uh, if we don't get something else doesn't get us first. And, uh, and so it could be a big market, which means a, a low cost, meaning it, because the fixed costs of R&D are amortized over um, a large population. So those are the attractions of aging reversal in particular. And what we've done there is two categories of aging reversal and many different methods and pathways shown for animals. Um, but we've been uh, employing two categories. One is what we call cell autonomous, meaning that it, it only works in the cell to which you deliver the therapy. Um, and things like telomerase or the transcription factors that um, Shin and Yamanaka got the Nobel Prize for reversing aging all the way back from 80 years to zero. Mm. Uh, you can use that in limited doses to get moderate aging reversal in, in mice. And we just co-authored a paper with David Sinclair's lab in Nature showing that that could be applied uh, in a, in a uh, AAV gene therapy delivery scenario. And it worked very well, considering that it only affects the cells you deliver it to. The other, right. I think, is even more exciting and broader in that you deliver it to some cells and they have impact on adjacent cells or even sometimes the entire body. And so uh, that's, we call it cell non-autonomous, spreads from the cell you deliver it to. And we, we tested about 45 such gene therapies, uh, we in this case being Noah, Noah Davidson as a postdoctoral fellow in my lab and then later um, uh, he and Dan Elvers and I co-founded uh, Rejuvenate Bio, uh, a, a startup company, to do the same thing. And we've done it in mice. We've now done it in dogs. The so dogs is intended to be a veterinary product mm. in and of itself, but also a segue into human clinical trials that we hope will be starting soon. Um, but of those 45 genes, we whittled it down to three. And various combinations of those three seem to handle a very large number of different um, diseases that have little in common other than they're age-related. Um, and these are things like uh, type 2 diabetes, osteoarthritis, um, kidney heart failure, mitral valve disease, and neurodegenerative diseases. So, um, so we're encouraged to think that I may be getting at the core of aging rather than at some um, symptom where you're just dealing with a very specific symptom of a very specific disease. And so that's where we that's where we're headed with it uh, um, right now. Wow. So do that's, you think do you think you can actually live long enough to live forever, as somebody once said? <laughs> I think that's uh, that's a very oh, challenging uh, question. Uh, I, I mean, I think the first step is to get aging reversal working well, and on work on all of your systems to make sure that you don't just you don't just fix the heart, yeah, because then your brain fails, and that that's not good. Now. 
forever is a very long time. I mean, there's mm -hmm. there, physicists will tell us there's going to be, you know, uh, uh, eventually all the stars will go out. Uh, but I think we just want to get far close enough to the future that we can see better and uh, and have a and we're not in some uh, incredibly desperate race to just uh, survive. We That's we right. get we get a lot of uh, things to do with AI and AGI and transients and things like that. So we get lots of kind of really interesting perceptions into where where the biological and genetic meets the AI and the computational and and and, and it's kind of interesting the the different types of perceptions that the public have about about you know watching some uh, movie to, versus the actual reality of uh, of, of existence and, and, yeah. and time. I'm a bit of a skeptic about a pure AI strategy. I think a hybrid strategy mm. has, has certain attractions. I mean, I'm a, I'm a already a hybrid because of uh, I have access to all the information in history pretty much on my cell <laughs> yeah. phone. But uh, but in terms of some core capabilities, um, uh, you know, the human brain is in the best scenario, in the best established historical scenario, is far better than anything that the, the computer has produced. I mean, just look at Einstein's 1905 uh, five discoveries, each of which was worth a Nobel Prize. Hmm. I mean, that, that's that's hard for a human to reproduce, much less a, a machine. Um, and and the biotechnology improvement curve is on a steeper slope. Uh, now that hmm. may be temporary, but it's been in place for a couple of decades, where it's going faster than Moore's law. And so, and also, uh, it's better at making atomically precise um, components. Um, so it's hard to get microfabrication below three nanometers, hmm. while biology has been doing sub nanometer engineering or, or engineering like things uh, for millennia. So um, that's a good point. I think I think what a lot of people in science do not understand very well in the public even less is that nature can do fantastic things. Yeah? It just shows us really the way. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're doing some strange uh, gene therapy things with CRISPR. This yeah. is this is nothing that was invented purely in the lab. It's something copied from nature, right? So na nature can all do this, all these wonderful things in very small detail, unbelievably quick. Now the same with the PCR reaction. So it's for doubling from DNA molecules, and I think one of the the biggest uh, things we can do as a scientist is take this technology, let's talk, call it technology that is already there in nature and use it for our purposes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. It, it would be very hard to engineer CRISPR or anything like it from scratch or DNA polymerase to make it from inorganic materials the way computers are made. Uh, it would just, uh, because in enzymes, in these protein catalysts, protein and RNA catalysts, a 0.02 nanometers matters. Mm. In other words, you, you can adjust things by 0.02 nanometers um, and, and take advantage of that. You can change catalytic rates by hundreds of fold uh, at that kind of scale. And so that makes everything more compact, more cost effective, faster, and so on. So. Uh, I'm I'm pretty uh, upbeat about e either biological 
um, transcendence or some yeah. kind of hybrid uh, where you know maybe computers are a little bit better at um, um, math or storing interfacing with even biology is even pretty good at storing information in the form of DNA it's about um, you know a million times higher density and longer life and so forth than, than uh, right than pure, but, purely inorganic um, But nature storage had, had billions of years time to develop all of these systems right. while we are That's relatively right. new to the playing That's field, right. right? Yeah. And you might say that nature was random, um, <laughs> but the fact is even engineering has a good engineering has a big component of trial and error. Yeah. So trial and error in a certain often will uh, give us a better final product than pure theory alone. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But come, coming back to the to the age reversal, so I'm interested, how do you want to actually measure age reversal? How do you measure that? Well, so there are various biomarkers, which I think are convenient for academic experiments, but the ultimate measure of age reversal is, um, is functional. Mm -hmm. medical and so we we've adopted the you know these eight different disease categories that have nothing in common other than that they are age related diseases and so if you can decrease the probability of succumbing to those diseases they, they can be you can artificially induce the disease or you can let it naturally occur in a pre-aged animal or pre-aged human um, that's 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 the bottom line is you want to, to not one disease because you do one disease and you could have you know overfit your 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 uh, functions to just deal with that disease but if you get multiple diseases then you're probably on the right track right that's our measure in this context I'm I'm not sure what do you think about so-called epigenetic clocks and to use them to measure the aging process. Let, let me just explain for our viewers who, what, what, what I'm talking about. Let's imagine like we have a DNA strand. Yeah, this is our uh, base pairs of the DNA on one large strand. What we have there is what can happen that so-called epigenetic marks of DNA methylation patterns that can attach to the DNA yeah, on different uh, points on our DNA and switch our genes on and off. So these are specific patterns. We can measure these patterns easily nowadays. But sometimes what happens during the aging process, something can go wrong. And then you have maybe a wrong epigenetic mark at some point. And again, we can measure this. So what happens is a lot of scientists, and uh, which is also actually based on a lot of, of, of the work I had in this field, also on Alzheimer's, we can identify these patterns and see if with age something changes. And of course, if we do then apply age reversal, let's say in a model uh, animal system, we can then measure accordingly if we look at these patterns, if the aging process goes back to the younger state or if it progresses or is at a steady state system. And of course, we can measure it for epigenetic therapies, meaning we can maybe remove certain epigenetic marks, which switches then genes again on or off. What, what, do, you, what do you think about these methods, the epigenetic application in aging, aging reversal? Well, essentially everything that we do in our lab is related to epigenetic therapies. 
whether they're cell autonomous or cell non-autonomous, whether they spread or not, they're epigenetic. Um, and that's in contrast to another school of thought, which is that aging is about damage and you need to fix the damage. Our theory is that if you fix the epigenetics, the young cells will take care of the damage as they do, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in, in, uh, in children. So, um, so we're very big on epigenetics. We, we do measure epigenetics occasionally. Like I said, the, the biomarkers, which are epigenetic biomarkers are useful in academic research, but we know as synthetic biologists, many of those, uh, markers that you show the, uh, on, on the DNA, um, you are not causally related to a disease. They're not causally related even to a gene that seemed to be involved in the disease. And so that means they're mark, they're literally markers, uh, that are correlated, but not causative. And that means that we could, but synthetic biologists clip those things off and nothing will happen. Conversely, we could fix the epigenetics. So, you know, like, uh, with the Yamanaka factors, just set it back to zero and then set those epigenetic marks back as if it were an old uh, cell. And so I think that because they're not causally related, we want something that is uh, on the direct path to what we care about, which is medical outcomes. Um, so basically you want to again, use our cells inherent uh, ability to repair itself, to get us back to a younger state. To the extent that repair is the problem. I mean, I think there are many other problems that is caused by being in the wrong epigenetic state, meaning old epigenetic state, uh, that are not necessarily due to damage. Uh, in fact, you could have a completely pristine genome, no DNA damage whatsoever, uh, and still die of old age because that's how powerful the epigenetics is. But it isn't necessarily related to these marks that everybody uses as their right. clock. It's a great clock. It's precise to about plus or minus two, two years, but it isn't causal. And that means that you can, as you start messing with aging, uh, you can get a disconnect between the non-causal biomarkers and what you actually care about. So that, so we, we just have humility as synthetic biologists that we know we can do we can disconnect these two, so we better have to be careful. Right. But that, that brings us back to an old question of evolutionary theory. Is, is aging pre-programmed in our... Almost theory? certainly. Almost certainly. You look at uh, a yeah. mouse lives about two years, even, even if you protect it from predators. Uh, and a bowhead whale lives about 200. And... Now, admittedly, there's a lot of differences between them, but uh, it's clear that generation after generation, the whole family dies at two years if they're mice, and the whole family lives, you know, 150 plus years if they're whales, or bowhead whales. So that's that's fairly uh, likely. And and then and then these experiments that show aging reversal um, also indicates there's some program there so where you don't have to change the DNA, you just have to change the way the DNA is regulated. Right. Daryl, you wanted to ask something there? Yeah, George. I mean, you're a very, very famous vegan as well. So uh, it's kind of interesting to get your your thoughts on Bill Gates's advocation of synthetic meats and, uh, and how to avoid climate disaster, as he talks about. But it'd be interesting to sort of get an understanding of, of uh, one one aspect of this is, is would, would a vegan actually eat synthetic meat? Uh, 
I know that sounds a bit strange, but uh, no, it's a it's a good question because it depends on why you're vegan. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Many, there are many reasons that I can list. Uh, some less obvious than others. So um, there's animal welfare, which is yeah. uh, one of them. Uh, there's um, which the the clean meats of uh, the vegan meats was does solve. Um, there's zoonotic diseases um, like COVID nineteen, mm. swine flu, so forth. There's uh, um, the antibiotics that one needs for modern um, meat production. Uh, there's uh, resources like sun and water that, that require maybe 20 times more resources and sometimes fossil fuels also to produce meat. Um, and then there's health. And yep. my journey into veganism did start with health. Uh, it, it, my father and I have a cholesterol problem and, uh, <clears throat> and he, he, he died as the consequences of uh, a triple bypass and um, cognitive decline uh, due to low oxygen. So, um, and that would not be solved by the clean meats. Uh, so mm. like Bill, I, I, I am working on clean meats. I'm working with a couple of companies like um, Memphis Meats uh, to, to produce these, but it's not yet absolutely clear that they can be produced for less cost than plants. Mm. And Plant-based meats, like Beyond Burger, for example, is an absolute terrific tasting thing. I have a lot of my carnivore friends who like it better than regular burgers. So uh, wow. we don't need to go to clean meat to to solve the global problem. In fact, uh, there are quite a few people that are basically vegan because they can't afford anything yeah. else. Um, there's some people who can't even afford uh, vegetables that are good enough to give them uh, vitamin A, and so a million people a year die right. of blindness due to vitamin A deficiency. And and this, one of the solutions that's been um, now approved is uh, is golden rice, which mm. is an engineered form of rice that has lots of it's so much vitamin A you can see it in the color of the grains <laughs> of rice. So um, we need we need solutions. I agree with Bill, but we need solutions. Um, I think a lot of them are going to come from more efficient crops, more efficient use of land that isn't currently um, fully uh, utilizing. A lot of it is dedicated to meat production when it could be dedicated to food. Uh, I agree. You know, because more efficient food. Yeah, I agree because I, I, I kind of think that if we've got a population that's that's rapidly increasing over the next you know, 150 to 100 years or so, the implications to the population and how, how land's used to, to feed people uh, is it sustainable? And and so, to me, it's kind of interesting what he talked about uh, and and the the amount of less resources that we needed to actually produce it was kind of fascinating for myself. I was I was I didn't really think about it at the time until he actually wrote brought those points up. But but the I was thinking more about uh, crop erosions or or or, or soy based plants uh, for cultivations and and instead of cash crops or or biofuels being replacing for cash crops and that kind of stuff um i didn't really think about it in terms of feeding feeding the world's population and um yeah it, it was a sudden realization that there was a dichotomy between 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 these two things and uh, and genomics can answer that question too but as you say you know transgenics or transgenomic crops and things like that um, how we can actually do that but transgenic so yeah. crops is uh, we have a problem in the in the public perception i think that changing natural products 
is usually seen as negative. What What do you think, George? How How can we deal with this? I don't. I. It's It's all relative. It's all relative. So it's It's whether the benefits outweigh the risks. Mm -hmm. Even if If the benefits are low, then the risks have to be zero, uh, which is almost never achieved with any realistic technology. And I think the thing is, there are many GMOs for which there's very little um, uh, discussion. There's very little worry. For example, moving the insulin gene from a human into a bacterium and then massively producing millions of liters of, of bacterial-produced insulin, that's fine. You know, that's a GMO that, that every diabetic in the world uses. Um, and all their families and friends are very supportive of it. Uh, the problem with GMO foods, you know, tomatoes and strawberries and things like that, is they don't provide much to the customer. Mm. And many of the original, much of the original pushback was, was from wealthy Europeans um, who particularly don't see an advantage. Um, and they see the disadvantage of an economic disadvantage of having a monopoly like Monsanto from the United States. Uh, impacting a European uh, economy. And so I totally sympathize with that point of view. If it doesn't help you much and it has a potential imp economic impact, then you should push back. Um, but things like golden rice, GMO mm. insulin, that sort of thing, that there are human lives at stake. And I really think that that's a, a completely different uh, issue. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. Uh, the same thing probably goes for climate change. There's a lot of human well-being and lives at stake. And so a little bit of well-placed and well-tested uh, engineering could um, um, have a much bigger impact than switching our lights from tungsten to LED uh, or switching from SUVs to bicycles. I mean, even if the entire planet of humans... Uh, stopped using fossil fuels and, and, and you know, behaved very well, um, there's still is four, that's, that's 10 gigatons of carbon. That's only 10 gigatons of human carbon, but there's 1400 gigatons at risk just due to the process, uh, natural processes that were initiated by our ancestors mm. when they killed off all the herbivores in the Arctic. So we need to be sequestering carbon, not just not putting more up there. Uh, yeah. So most of the proposals, uh, Anyway, I think there there is some fairly low cost, low risk methods of of using uh, engineering to um, to reverse climate change, not just slow it yeah. down. That's a perfect segue to my next question. You're, you're talking about the carbon footprint, and you mentioned already that uh, we. Humans probably also played a big role in the extinction of certain animals, like the woolly mammoths. Yes. And one of your projects that you started several years ago is to bring back the woolly mammoths. Can you can you explain a little bit what this project is about? Well, it's more about uh, not so much about bringing back an animal a species, but saving endangered species, uh, the Asian elephant and also restoring a vibrant ecosystem in the Arctic. So the Arctic used to be a beautiful mm. grassland that was very good at sequestering carbon. Each growing season would add another layer of roots until it was 500 meters thick, which is about 500 times thicker than most of the 
tropical rainforests. Mm -hmm. And so most of the carbon in the world is stored in the Arctic because grass was so good at it. But those got, when the herbivores got um, uh, extinct due to human and other forces, uh, that changed from a beautiful grassland into, into these scraggly trees that are very dark and they bring in heat through their albedo, their darkness. And then they also um, pile, they allow snow to pile up, which protects the minus 40 from getting down into the soil. Mm -hmm. um, and so the warm soil stays warm because it's downy blanket. And, and, and then the, the grass is, is better at photosynthesis. For, so for those three reasons, uh, a res restoration of that fairly recently uh, loss, maybe in the last 10, 20,000 years, um, restoring it back to that would have huge benefit, not just for the ecosystem, but for uh, human uh, efforts to sequester carbon. And this would this could be done with very low or maybe zero um, belt tightening on the for the consumers. It's just it's just encouraging a, a natural process in the world rather than having small effects due to uh, you know changes in how you use energy and transportation. Right. I'm all in favor of consciousness raising via all of these uh, human uh, carbon footprint related things. But I think much bigger than our carbon footprint is what we can do by sequestering carbon and reversing the back to pre-industrial uh, levels. Hmm. But we still have the technical problem. Let's, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. Obviously, just bringing back extinct species is extremely difficult, if at all possible. We don't know that yet. So, so far, we haven't really brought back anything. Well, we brought back two viruses. Um, it's not really a mammal, <laughs> certainly. I think we have and enough we, we, we brought, viruses. We brought back frozen, two frozen mammals. Uh, a black-footed ferret was 32 years frozen, mm. and uh, a horse that was uh, um, frozen for 40 years. Um, Problem is mammoths were frozen for a lot longer than that and under less than ideal circumstances. So we probably can't do that kind of de-extinction event, uh, but we can do it. Uh, what, we, what we can do is something maybe even better, which is we can make a cold resistant elephant that has, you know, dozens of genes from the woolly mammoth. So we've de-extincted the genes rather than the species. Plus we can add in genes that protect elephant against modern uh, problems like uh, there's an extinction level virus called EEHV. It's killing off uh, the baby elephants. Uh, we can make them resistant to that. We're getting very good at making, I mean, either by vaccines or CRISPR or something like that. Mm. Uh, and we can also make them poacher resistant. That sounds funny that you can genetically engineer an organism to be poacher resistant, but it turns out there's, um, we know how to make tusks either very long or very short. So you can make them much long, many times they're the size of their head, or there's natural variants that occurs occasionally in, in natural populations where they're almost invisible. And so you can make it so you could dial it up and down. Uh, so if they're out in the wild where they could be poached, they have short tusks. And if they're um, in a well secure, protected environment, they could have long tusks. And so I think those three things, so those cold resistance, virus resistance, and poacher resistance, um, is better than just bringing back the mammoth. It'll look like a mammoth, it'll behave like a mammoth, it'll love minus 40 degrees, um, 
but it will it'll have all these uh, genetic advantages over uh, current Asian elephants. They will basically be an Asian elephant, so we will be preserving that species as well, a very close relative to the Asian elephant. It would be a hybrid. So I, think, I think it's called proxy species, right? So you are basically mimicking what's already or what was extinct. Right. It's a very, clo it's a very close proxy because the, the mammoth and the Asian elephant are very, very similar. For, right. So, for example, uh, I mean, it's not like a proxy species where we bring in a polar bear or something, it, which is a carnivore, not a herbivore. Yeah, it's much closer. In fact, baby elephants often are covered with woolly hair. Yeah. And, um, and when you have elephants up in Canada, they love to play in the snow and they will go and they'll break into the ice of the lakes and swim in the, in the cold. So oh. they really are, are very close to being mammoths. You just need a little nudge. <laughs> But, but to bring them a little bit closer with genetic technologies, I mean, I, I, th I saw some photos of you where you were basically, I don't know if you dig them, dug them out yourself, but you got some bones back from yes, uh, the I, mammoths. Those, those I got myself, yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, well, well actually, it was much? a combination. The frozen ones uh, other people got, but the non-frozen ones I, I got myself. Yeah. Fantastic. That must be fun. But how much DNA can you still get out of those? All, all you, 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 those don't, you only need trace amounts of DNA. So, you know, we can, in humans, we can sequence DNA from a single cell and get a pretty accurate uh, image uh, of it. Uh, for ancient DNA, it's hundreds of times less efficient, but you still only need, uh, you know, uh, few, you know, fingerfuls of, of, of sand-like uh, tissue. So uh, that's not a problem. And then you get it into the computer and you reconstruct it and you compare it to elephant DNA and you can see the differences. And there are very few differences. It's like three differences between elephants and, and uh, um, mammoths that, that give you blood that's very uh, cold tolerant and that's been proven that the gene has been resurrected um, by the Campbell group and, and and it's been shown to be cold resistant mm -hmm. so um, so we know those processes we know how to get the ancient DNA how to sequence it into the computer and then go from the computer to, to fresh synthetic DNA and then test that that's, that, that gene pro provides cold resistance and there's there's another gene, set of genes that provide cold-resistant nerve endings, uh, and and so on. We, we're we're getting you know we're we're getting deep knowledge of you know what causes the fat-containing lumps on their back and head, fat all over their body, the thick the thick long hair. All these things are are, are things that are known both from studying elephants and other species. Mm. Um, so that's that's making great progress. But also, how long does it take? I mean, obviously. Elephants, they are not uh, grown in labs like mice. So it, it takes probably quite a long time to really adjust, or modify their genome to the well, environment. Well, interestingly, uh, the modification of the genome can be very quick uh, because we don't have to grow, uh, we don't have to go through a whole elephant generation to test it. So we can, um, many things, the, the two things I mentioned already can be tested uh, in the laboratory mm -hmm. uh, with elephant and mammoth genes side by side, but without making an, a whole elephant. But even if we make a whole elephant, a lot can be tested, you know, on a two-year-old uh, elephant. Uh, it doesn't, you don't have to wait until it's uh, 
I mean, they live to 60 years old. You don't have to wait that long. Um, uh, they are, you know, the females are reproductively fit around nine years old. Um, mm -hmm. The gestation period is 22 months. Now, we've kind of de-risked this whole process as well. You can do very similar experiments in pigs. And so we've, we've now got pigs that have been engineered at 42 different genetic locations. So 42 changes, which is a lot. Uh, you know, typically, like when you're doing human genetic engineering with gene therapy, that's one gene at a time or maybe two. Mm. But in pigs, we've done 42. We call it pig version 3.0. They're intended for... Uh, organ transplants, and we have about 2,000 of them now. So, so it's, it's, that's kind of a crucial concept that we can make herds of these engineered uh, organisms. And another precedent example is the bison. The bison was down almost extinct uh, in the wild, and now we have um, 500,000 of them, half a million worldwide. So that's a, it shows that we can really grow, you know, once we have the right uh, genetic material and the right plan, we can uh, re put them back in the wild. Wow, that's fascinating, fascinating. But I wonder, so, I mean, you almost, I guess, like 80% of your life, you dealt with biology, with the looking at the, our core, uh, on our DNA, what we are made of. Do you think that the development of life on Earth is very specific to our planet, or can a similar system have evolved somewhere else? I wonder. Well, uh, hmm. you know, the answer is an open question. It's, it's, a, it's a question that can be answered in a variety of ways. I mean, we're looking for signals, you know, uh, looking for planets that are Earth-like and have atmosphere that are consistent with life, and that type of study is getting better and better every year. We're also simulating it in the laboratory where we're asking, you know, how special does the environment have to be and how fast can it go? So if it can go within sort of the time of a PhD thesis, then you, you've got accelerated evolutions, accelerated origin of life from inorganic materials. Mm -hmm. So that's another line of research, but neither of those have yielded anything that's convincing enough that, that uh, I think we need to consider the possibility that we're the only um, intelligent life in the universe, possibly the only life in the universe. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, but it but it could be just the opposite. It could be we're completely surrounded by uh, alien life. Um, we just it, it is one of our most embarrassing gaps in our scientific knowledge is whether we're alone uh, out of you know trillions of stars, uh, whether we are completely surrounded and we don't even see it. Right. But on the other hand, I mean, one thing that obviously you are an expert heard on is to on, on synthetic biology, basically building something from scratch. So where do you think, where are we going with these things? Can we, can we design life in the Petri dish and come up with something completely new? that we have never seen before? Uh, well, this is challenging. Uh, mo most of the synthetic biology is are small variations on, on uh, existing genomes, um, you know, deleting a few genes, rearranging them. Um, probably the most radical change <coughs> is what we've been doing is changing the genetic code mm -hmm. where every 
every gene is changed in multiple ways. Um, that still is very closely related to the original. Um, the, probably the thing that will come closest to something really new is this origin of life type of uh, study where you're really starting from chemistry. And you can either start with the chemicals that we think existed on uh, early Earth or early universe and then go from there. Or we can just tell, use a whole other set of chemicals that we think could also evolve life. And that's a, those are two interesting pathways. And they're the most likely ones to turn up something that's not related um, to the DNA and RNA of our current world. Uh, then, then there's, then there's, you know, there's motivations for making new things that are functionally new, that, that, that are based on bio biology's amazing ability to do this kind of atomic precision um, engineering or help us do that. Uh, and you know, one of my pet projects is trying to send a new life form, uh, a synthetic biology form to uh, Proxima B, which is 4.7 million, uh, sorry, 4.7 light years away, um, and then have it construct a communication channel back. It's like I just uh, uh, participated in, in a breakthrough Starshot uh, conversation on that. Uh, so that's a great synthetic biology challenge. Make another synthetic biology challenge is making cells resistant to all viruses or resistant to all pathogens. Uh, do you think? Uh, do you think an ancient I guess reference genome, an ancient human reference genome, would be a, uh, an interesting thing to get to, in the sense of that that could be the origin of. I mean, okay, I'm 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 humanist here in terms of in terms of uh, bias, but could it be an interesting segue into how diseases evolved and how how a variant came about? And I, I know it's hard in terms of creating an, a, a, an ancient reference human genome. And, and, and again, where would, where would where would the origin of that be? But equally, it'd be interesting to see how we started here and got to here, and, and we could actually map out where those mutations are and and, so, where, and how they kind of evolved. No, I think that's an interesting uh, point, uh, and we are doing that in a certain sense. We have the complete, nearly complete genome of humans, of Neanderthals, and of chimpanzees, and we can do that three-way comparison. Um, and we can even correlate the small change differences between us and ne Neanderthals would probably look like us if we dressed them up properly. Uh, but the, the, those small changes, uh, we can correlate with diseases. And there yeah. are some diseases of us. So many, peop many people in the world have Neanderthal DNA. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm one of them. Uh, I have like 3% Neanderthal DNA, which is not a record. But... Um, and you can associate diseases with the chunk of the Neanderthal version of that DNA. Um, I, you don't, if you wanted to uh, do functional tests, uh, so you can make uh, highly engineered cells, and those highly engineered cells could even be used in um, organ transplants. So just like we're making pigs for organ transplants, we are also making um, human organs derived from human pluripotent stem cells from my left arm mm -hmm. uh, into and, and those organs to be transplanted and then you can see how they function. So you could in principle have uh, an organ that has even more Neanderthal DNA than I have and see how it functions. Um, I, I think that will probably uh, happen.
mini Neanderthal. That that would be fascinating. Yeah. It's 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 if they have if they're perceived to have advantages where they would be resistant to a pathogen uh, or be more robust in some uh, medical sense, then we will probably do it. Also, it's unknown just how much Neanderthal DNA there is in our yeah. population and Denosovan. So there's a, another uh, ancient species that's about as far away from us as Neanderthal is, but also far away from Neanderthal. And our, and our current population has a mixture of all these. So in principle, um, just by um, um, you know some uh, marriage uh, arrangements, you could get people that are highly enriched for those two variations and, and depleted for the modern uh, DNA, and they would probably be fine. You know, right. So we, we, in theory, we could partially breed out our new Neanderthal and Denisovan lines back yeah. where they came from, right? Yeah. So there, there are, there are people who might find that desirable from, from their family, you know, what their family origins. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think the government is going to interfere with their personal choices. Yeah, that's probably because there are a lot of those Neanderthals specifically working in government. But hopefully they won't interfere either way. They won't make us do it and they won't stop us from doing it. Right? Yeah. It's, right. it's a personal choice who you marry. Uh, which talking government are you about, talking about, Axel? <laughs> or, uh, but, but talking about personal choices, so obviously <laughs> technology, I mean, everything on, on our planet changes with our technologies. Mm. And so, George, where, where do you see us as a species developing with all these new technologies, CRISPR, nanotechnology, and, and how we can modify ourselves in theory? Well, we're modifying ourselves more than in theory. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, like I said, we're hybrids or with electronics. We uh, are superhuman in the sense of we're resistant to everything we're vaccinated for, mm -hmm. um, which which our ancestors would have uh, killed to get that superpower yeah. uh, to be resistant to um, um, smallpox and polio and mumps and measles and all that stuff. Um, a huge fraction of babies and mothers died mm. during birth uh, in our ancestors. So, so we're superhuman already. Uh, but um, many of the, th but because we're hybrids, because we get so much benefit from phones and from airplanes, and we don't need to be super strong or super fast because mm. we're not going to be stronger or faster than a jet. Uh, so we might as well face the fact we're going to be a hybrid. Um, so what's left is really being is um, aging and intelligence, cognitive uh, ability. And I think we are changing ourselves cognitively, partly because we have such an old population now. We're, we're terrified of cognitive decline mm -hmm. um, in ourselves and in our parents mm -hmm. and um, friends. And so we're working hard. Uh, you, you mentioned, Axel, that you worked on uh, Alzheimer's. I, my group works on Alzheimer's uh, uh, and other uh, neurodegenerative diseases I mentioned in, in dogs. Uh, so um, the consequence of that may be we may over, maybe overdo it. You know, all, that if we get good enough at preventing cognitive decline, that might be also result in cognitive advancement. Hmm. And and our species has no particular problem with cognitive advancement. That's the whole idea behind 
you know, schools and uh, um, books and, and that sort of thing, computers. Um, but this would be a little different. This would be something that's uh, more but biological. We, but we see also the negative effects. So I think there were recent studies that showed that we have in, in recent years actually a decline in the average IQ in, in younger people, particularly. So, which maybe yeah. There, well, there's a there's a there's a. I think the jury is still out. I mean, there's the Flynn effect where we see an increase in in IQ with time, and then there's smaller effects that that fluctuate from year to year. Yeah. Um, which you know dependent on cultural effects and and all, there's all kinds of confounding effects in IQ tests. And IQ doesn't necessarily even measure what we care about, mm. but. Um, I think we should pay attention, though. I mean, we should, you know, is it is it nutrition? Is it, uh, you know, uh, failure to vaccinate? Is it, uh, you know, there are many. It reasons cannot be why. something evolutionary, right? So I would probably, argue that, probably that our ancestors probably not in the conventional some, sense. If you would, if you would take some person with a time machine out from fifty thousand years ago and would transplant this person into our current time, they will probably be. Do just fine. They would they would do fine, but they would probably not be uh, as tall as we are um, mm. because there's been a, a an increase in height with with time that has to do with the nutrition of our grandmothers and mm. our mothers, um, and that probably also has to do something to do with our cognition. Um, and you know, there's some things that take a few generations to kick in. So, time machine will will bring. People back that are uh, are different, but still fine. They'll be they'll be uh, they would fit into society just fine. Uh, I think know, it's all about it's all about investment in the in, in our in our in our youth and our young youngsters. Make sure Absolutely. that there's education in and health and activity uh, in many ways, and 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 making it so that the planet is better than you. You know, you leave the planet. Uh, better than you, 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 you bought into it, basically. Talking about making things better, George, do you have any advice for young people who want to go into science? So what is, where do you think they should go? What, what are hot topics? Like, imagine you would be young, you would be 16, 17 years old, and you would decide, hey, I want to do something to change the world. What, what area would you go into? Uh, well, I think uh, all sorts of space-related science is important, especially biological uh, components. There's a, a lot of emphasis on the physics, but we need, uh, but we need a lot more studies on on human adaptation to radiation, to gravity, to um, uh, microbial uh, problems of, uh, and psychological problems of having close quarters. Um, so that's one field. Uh, another field that I think is is ripe is uh, applying uh, AI machine learning to, um, to 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 medical and and biological problems. Like we we've published uh, four papers on applying it to protein design. Proteins are like these are the nano structures at work, and so that combination of using big clunky computers to help us make you know tiny more efficient ones would be it'd be quite cool mm. uh, and then almost anything having to do with synthetic biology is is going to be very impactful everything we've been talking about in this session um, I think is is uh, every because the 
rate of change is so steep because uh, we have exponential improvement in these technologies. Every few years, you get a level playing field where all the incoming young people have a slight advantage over the old people because they have a fresh mind and they can they can see how it is <laughs> while the old folks are still trying to protect their turf and keep it the way it was, you know, keep the technology so that they're comfortable with it while young people come in and they have an advantage. So look for fields where there's an exponential change in, in cost and quality and, and, mm. and qualitative changes. And I think synthetic biology is a perfect example of that, reading mm. and writing DNA. Yeah, yeah, very good idea, yeah. Um, just before we close, I would be, I'm curious about, again, like if, if you would start again, if, if you look back at your career, do you think there were mistakes you made? What, what would you do differently? Or what should a young scientist look out for when going out to the university? And should they stay at university? Should they maybe go and start a company instead? I mean, there are so many options. Um, I think it, it varies from person to person. You have to make your personal choices. I mean, a lot of young people have to do something from a financial standpoint. So I felt a lot of pressure when I was in college to finish college early and, and get a job. And the job that I chose was graduate school, but at least it went from me paying the college to the college paying me. Hmm. Uh, and so I, so I finished in two years, mainly for financial uh, motivation. Hmm. And I think that, so that's, that's one of the things that varies from person to person is, are they, how, how far into debt are they willing to go in order to get a better, <laughs> Yeah. You know, better education. Now, a lot of education can be achieved on the fly. So I would say almost everything I do now, I didn't have a course in. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, for example, mostly what I do is engineering. I, I'm in the National Academy of Engineering, um, but I never took a course in engineering. Uh, I do a lot of computer programming, but I, I had so much computer programming before I got to college. I didn't take any courses in computer programming. And the list goes on. So I don't, I don't want to over or underemphasize the importance of formal education. It's a great place to meet people. You know, so even though, uh, you know, Bill Gates uh, didn't finish and, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, didn't finish their degrees at Harvard, they did take advantage of Harvard and that they met some very key people that helped them launch, uh, you know, two of the biggest uh, uh, social and economic uh, phenomenon in history. So I think even a year in a in a elite university can be extremely helpful uh, to getting to meeting people and getting oriented to your priorities. Um, yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. So, George, imagine you got a lot of money. Someone would throw money at you. What would be the next big project you would work on? Uh, well, I, you know, I think if you get some people uh, get too much money, I'm not saying that I would get too much money, but some people, when they get too much money, then they then they become obsessed with maintaining it and and uh, keeping it away from other people and things like that. Uh, so that's that's one thing to be cautious of. There, in fact, a lot of lottery winners are some of the saddest people on the planet. Mm -hmm. That said, I have already have some fairly. Um, 
you know, uh, some hobbies that could benefit from, uh, I mean, serious scientific problems. So we've mentioned a lot of them, which is um, dealing with uh, diseases of aging. That's not cheap, although uh, um, getting uh, to other planets, ideally even outside of our solar system, mm -hmm. is going to take some money. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, safely and uh, thoughtfully engineering ecosystems to restore them to a better place and do carbon sequestration. That's something where a little bit of money could, res in fact, all of these are examples where a little bit of money could have a, a big return. So mm -hmm. the, the question isn't what you would do with a lot of money, is how you would use a little money to save us trillions of dollars. Uh, you know, one of my pet projects is the bioweather map. I've mm -hmm. been advocating this for a couple of decades. Uh, it's like, it's analogous to weather map. Um, where people get engaged, they, you know, the, the regular public looks at the weather in the morning to decide whether they're going to, you know, you know, walk or take the car. That it might prevent them from, you know, slipping and falling on the ice and hurting their hip and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing, you, you have life-threatening events that, that could be solved by a bioweather map where you decide mm -hmm. whether you're going to go to daycare or to your job based on what pathogens are there that morning, or, or you can see what's happening on global scale so you can make decisions uh, you know, about travel and so forth. So I think we need bioweather map. The cost of that is large, but it's thousands of times less than what we're spending on just one disease. So this would save us from many diseases. Mm -hmm. Just one disease is costing us $16 trillion in the United States alone. And, and our preparedness has an impact because, so mm -hmm. for example, China and other Asian countries were prepared and they had 400 times fewer deaths per capita, per mm -hmm. capita. Right. So, so we need to buy a weather map uh, and it's cheap compared, you know, it's like if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Uh, so most of the things that I would spend money, uh, things I am spending money on um, uh, are aimed at, at, at saving uh, us from, you know, uh, painful, uh, uh, horrible uh, uh, diseases and saving us money. That's a very good strategy. I like that. That's what, what we do too. Yeah. So, Daryl, do you have any uh, last questions or... No, not really. Only, only to say that George and I worked together many years ago at Gnome. So, um, yeah. It was a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. Gnome lives on in uh, companies like Vertas and Nebula Genomics. Yeah. Um, we, we will not be satisfied until everybody who wants one can get their genome. Indeed. Uh, indeed. Absolutely. And, and for that matter, infectious disease as well as inherited disease. So uh, thank you but for how, your help how, how with Gnome. Take? <laughs> I, I, I noticed that we have probably a slowdown in getting genome sequencing adopted for the public so of course we had with 23andme coming out like i don't know how old they are 10 years 12 years um that in recent times it, it, it slowed down a little bit people are i think the early I, I think what has slowed down is things that are ancestry related mm. um, but what is picking up is whole genome sequencing which is much more medically related mm. uh, and so 
if you, there are some things that are somewhere in between where you get a little bit of medical information, but what we really want is the whole deal. We want the whole genome. Um, yes. We want a few other omics that, you know, that have to do with infectious disease and immunology, but that will provide us with much better preventative medicine. And preventative medicine is much less expensive, much less painful, many fewer visits to the hospital. Um, exactly, so exactly. That's where we're going. So that means people get sequenced, get vaccinated, and stay healthy. Absolutely. Well. <laughs> yep. All right. Thank you. George, thank you so much. It was My pleasure. a pleasure yeah. talking to you. Um, and I'm looking forward to fantastic projects we can do together in the future. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And uh, all the best to you. Stay safe. Yeah. Avoid, okay. uh, avoid the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much. Okay. Take okay. care. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, you again. You know, the podcast is over, right? Oh. But coming back to Aristotle. Aristotle raised a crucial question. The possibility of a radical life extension or even immortality. He believed that any physical entity is composed of opposite and uh, conflicting elements. According to him, any such entity must be in a constant process of change, and therefore cannot be preserved like this one, as is for a long time. Thus, a living organism is fated for ultimate destruction, for it contains in itself antagonistic forces and elements that mutually annihilate each other and thus destroy the entire body. This could be epigenetic markers or other molecules that break down. Similarly, Greek physician Galen emphasized that um, life could be prolonged but was of the opinion that death is inevitable as the body deteriorates of itself. In other words, we have to face the impossibility of our body's preservation beyond a predetermined time limit, at least in a living form. As we can see here, the Otocera are still preserved. Uh, to keep it preserved, I will put it back to the shelf where it belongs. You don't have to watch me doing this. Uh, you can switch off, right? Go. Oh. But before you do, please help me out with this and uh, subscribe to the show and uh, press the like button. And of course, if you watch this on YouTube, please press also the bell icon so that you'll get notified whenever something new comes up from the late night science show. 
<sighs> well, that's it. Good night. This is the late night science. Today, with your hosts, Dr. Axel Schumacher and Dr. Daryl Baker. Our guest today, a famous geneticist and molecular engineer, studied at Duke University, now a professor at Harvard Medical School, co founder of the Health Network who successfully sequenced mammoth DNA. He helped initiate the Human Genome Project and now works on age reversal. The father of genome sequencing, George Church. It's you. How are you doing, huh? Look, I'm just polishing some fossils. Have a closer look at this beautiful column of Orthoceras. <laughs> They're extinct now. They're also called straight-shelled cephalopods. Striking creatures. They rest inside of a dark limestone here. You can see this here, frozen in time. I mean, over millions of years, their shells, yeah, these ones, they're turned into calcite and fossilized. This one, this one was found in Africa. But of course, when those animals lived, well, there was no continent really called Africa. They're really old. I mean, really old. Computer, do we have something on uh, this one? Yes, I have. Orthoceras are dated to the lower or division to Triassic ages, 500 to 190 million years ago. These specimens are estimated from a time 420 million years ago. Wow. That was many million years before even the first dinosaurs appeared. Correct. At that time, the Earth was mostly covered in water. The animals lived inside of their shells, had tentacles they could use to grab food. They had a soft squid-like body. Unlike many crabs who leave their small shells to grow bigger ones, an orthoceer didn't have to go anywhere. It simply grew its shell bigger. It did this by creating a new dividing wall inside the shell called a scepter. Today, you can see the scepters separated by lines in the fossil. Scientists can tell the age of the orthoceras by looking at how many lines there are. Parts of the body were inside a tube that runs the entire length of the shell through each of the chambers. Once filled with water, the animal could force the water out, propelling itself backward with a kind of jet propulsion. 
They were the ancestors for today's Nautilus family that includes uh, octopus, squid, and cuttlefish. But they went extinct around the time of the dinosaurs. 65 million years ago, I think most of us would agree that it really sucks to get extinct. I wonder if future scientists, many million years into the future, will find our human remains in similar stones. <sighs> I guess aging and death is a physical process that will always be with us, although nobody really wants to die, at least not too early. You remember Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher and polymath? He talked about this already in his book, The Anima on the Soul. He speaks of the vital principle or the distinct characteristics of living beings in contrast to inanimate matter, like this one. Aristotle contemplated the question, what is life and how can it be maintained? And whether death can be avoided, can we live longer? The question is, can we learn something from the animal world and extinct species to help us survive? Huh? Aristotle carefully investigated the possible causes of longevity and mortality. For example, he compared the lifespans of uh, various animals and plants, various lifestyles and environmental conditions. Another Greek philosopher, prodigious physician Galen in his treatise Hygiene, written around the year 175, framed aging as a natural process that can be eased or even delayed by preventive measures such as a diet. He wrote his books at the peak of his career as physician to the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Galen thought of aging holistically and recognized that a person's aging path is highly individual with a wide range of possible outcomes. He developed treatments based on herbs and spices, which he administered to fellow doctors for verification. So in some ways, he was one of the inventors of modern medicine. Ah, yeah. I mean, generally, advice on uh, how to stay healthy during aging should not be based on opinions and traditions, but on scientific evidence. Yes, maybe we can learn from extinct species. Maybe not as old as this one, because uh, there's nothing we can extract here on uh, molecules from this. I mean, genetic material and so on. But what about mammoths and uh, Neanderthals? 
I mean, it should be possible to extract DNA from them, at least few fragments. I should discuss this with someone. Someone who's actually researching aging and age reversal. Oh, I know. Let's have a chat with my good old colleague, Professor George Church. Computer, do we have anything on uh, George? George is Professor of Genetics at Harvard Medical School and Professor of Health Sciences and Technology at Harvard and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. George is widely recognized for his innovative contributions to genomic science and his many pioneering contributions to chemistry and biomedicine. In 1984, he developed the first direct genomic sequencing method, which resulted in the first genome sequence. He helped initiate the Human Genome Project and the Personal Genome Project in 2005. George invented the broadly applied concepts of molecular multiplexing and tags, homologous recombination methods, and array DNA synthesizers. In 2015, Church and his research team at Harvard successfully copied some woolly mammoth genes into the genome of an Asian elephant. Perfect. That's our man. <laughs> Let's go. Welcome, welcome, George Church. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> great to have you here on our podcast for several reasons. Because mm -hmm. obviously, in the in the science field, in the genetics uh, vertical, you are a legend already, and I'm sure you will do so much more in the future. So much we can also work together. Because what people don't know. You joined Shivom, which is also my company, and we will work a little bit together on making great things in science, uh, like really doing the next level thing. So welcome on, on Shivom and welcome on the podcast. Yes, thank you. George. Yeah, so um, people who do not know you, and I guess that probably there is no one out there, especially listening to the podcast, uh, like in, in, in a few sentences. So um, what is your current job there? Where, where are you sitting? And um, yeah, what, what are you currently, so, what's your hottest project? So I'm a professor uh, at Harvard and MIT, specializing in biotechnology development, including reading and writing and editing of DNA and and anything that you can do with DNA, ranging from um, information encoding all the way up to um, or organ transplants and ecosystems. Fantastic, fantastic. So let's jump right in. So one topic I, I, I really would love to discuss with you because uh, I have also background in uh, longevity, aging, so I worked on uh, uh, late onset Alzheimer's disease and frontal dementia before. And I know you are also fascinated by these topics working on specifically age reversal. Can you, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what this is about? What is the fascination about age reversal and what are you working on? So um, 
aging affects almost every source of human morbidity and mortality. Maybe it, maybe it's not the only influencer, but it's a, it, it, is, it influences all kinds of things. Um, ranging from COVID-19, where there's a huge age effect, to mm. even falling, probability of falling down or the probability of getting up afterwards. That's all age-related. Um, um, so then you have a choice between longevity and aging reversal. The problem with longevity is it takes decades to prove your point to the FDA, EMA, whatever uh, organizations. Um, and to do the experiments, the clinical trials. Yeah, you trials. run the clinical trials over 100 exactly. years, take, which is take, probably or even Or even difficult. 10 is, uh, 20 is prohibitive. Yeah. Uh, but with aging reversal, you can see, you can see effects, um, in weeks. Uh, yeah. and that, and that's, and, uh, that's the goal. So, uh, it could, it also, a third reason is it has a, um, strong, um, possibility of being something that we all need. Um, certainly we all do die of aging, uh, if we don't get something else doesn't get us first. And, uh, and so it could be a big market, which means a, a low cost, meaning it, because the fixed costs of R and D are amortized over, um, a large population. So those are the attractions of aging reversal in particular. And what we've done there is two categories of aging reversal and many different methods and pathways shown for animals. Um, but we've been employing two categories. One is what we call cell autonomous, meaning that it, it only works in the cell to which you deliver the therapy. Um, and things like telomerase or the transcription factors that, um, Shin and Yamanaka got the Nobel Prize for reversing aging all the way back from 80 years to zero. Mm. Uh, you can use that in limited doses to get moderate aging reversal in, in mice. And we just, co-authored a paper with David Sinclair's lab in Nature showing that that could be applied uh, in a, in a uh, AAV gene therapy delivery scenario. And it worked very well considering that it only affects the cells you deliver it to. The other, right. I think, is even more exciting and broader in that you deliver it to some cells and they have impact on adjacent cells or even sometimes the entire body. And so, uh, that's, we call it cell non-autonomous, spreads from the cell you deliver it to. And we, we tested about 45 such gene therapies, uh, we in this case being Noah, Noah Davidson as a postdoctoral fellow in my lab. And then later, um, uh, he and Dan Elvers and I co-founded, uh, Rejuvenate Bio, uh, a startup company to do the same thing. And we've done it in mice. We've now done it in dogs. The so dogs is intended to be a veterinary product mm. in and of itself, but also a segue into human clinical trials that we hope will be starting soon. Um, but of those 45 genes, we whittled it down to three and various combinations of those three seem to handle a very large number of different, um, diseases that have little in common other than they're age related. Um, and these are things like, uh, type two diabetes, osteoarthritis, um, kidney heart failure, mitral valve disease and neurodegenerative diseases. So, um, so we're encouraged to think that I may be getting at the core of aging rather than at some, um, symptom where you're just dealing with a very specific symptom of a very specific disease. And so that's where we, that's where we're headed with it. Uh, um, Right now. Wow. So do That's, you think, do you think you can actually live long enough to live forever? As somebody once said. 
I think that's uh, that's a very oh, challenging question. Uh, I, I mean, I think the first step is to get aging reversal working well, and on work on all of your systems to make sure that you don't just you don't just fix the heart, yeah, because then your brain fails, and that that's not good. Now, forever is a very long time. I mean, there's mm -hmm. there physicists will tell us there's going to be you know uh, uh, eventually all the stars will go out. Uh, but I think we just want to get far close enough to the future that we can see better and uh, and have a and we're not in some uh, incredibly desperate race to just uh, survive. We That's we get right. we get a lot of uh, things to do with AI and AGI and transients and things like that. So we get lots of kind of really interesting perceptions into where where the biological and genetic meets the AI and the computation. And, 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 and it's kind of interesting, the, the different types of perceptions that the public have about, about, you know, watching some uh, movie to, versus the actual reality of, uh, of, of existence and, and, yeah. and time. I'm a bit of a skeptic about a pure AI strategy. I think a hybrid strategy mm. has, has certain attractions. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a already a hybrid because of uh, I have access to all the information in history pretty much on my cell <laughs> yeah. phone. But uh, but in terms of some core capabilities, um, uh, you know, the human brain is in the best scenario in the best established historical scenario is far better than anything that the, the computer has produced. I mean, just look at Einstein's 1905 uh, five discoveries, each of which was worth a Nobel Prize. Hmm. I mean, that, that's that's hard for a human to reproduce, much less a, a machine. Um, and and the biotechnology improvement curve is on a steeper slope. Uh, now, that hmm. may be temporary, but it's been in place for a couple of decades where it's going faster than Moore's law. And so, and also, uh, it's better at making atomically precise, um, components. Um, so it's hard to get microfabrication below three nanometers mm. while biology has been doing sub nanometer engineering for, uh, or engineering like things, uh, for millennia. So, um, that's a good but point. I think I think what a lot of people in science do not understand very well, in the public even less, is that nature can do fantastic things. Yeah, it just shows us really the way. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're doing some strange uh, gene therapy things with CRISPR. This yeah. is this is nothing that was invented purely in the lab. It's something copied from nature, right? So. Nature can all do this, all these wonderful things in very small detail, unbelievably quick. Now, the same with the PCR reaction, so it's for doubling from DNA molecules. And I think one of the, the biggest uh, things we can do as a scientist is take this technology, let's talk, call it technology that is already there in nature, and use it for our purposes, right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It, it would be very hard to enjoy CRISPR or anything like it from scratch or DNA polymerase to make it from inorganic materials the way computers are made. Uh, it was just uh, because in enzymes, in these protein catalysts, protein and RNA catalysts, a 0.02 nanometers matters. Mm. In other words, you, you can adjust things by 0.02 nanometers um, 
and, and, and take advantage of that. You can change catalytic rates by hundreds of fold uh, at that kind of scale. And so that makes everything more compact, more cost effective, faster, and so on. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty uh, upbeat about e either biological um, transcendence or some mm. kind of hybrid uh, where, you know, c maybe computers are a little bit better at um, um, math or storing interfacing with even biology is even pretty good at storing information in the form of DNA. It's about, um, you know, a million times higher density and longer life and so forth than, than, uh, right. than pure, but, purely inorganic. Uh, but but nature had, had billions of years time to develop all of these systems right. while we are That's relatively right. new to the playing That's field. Right. right? Yeah. And you might say that nature was random. <laughs> um, but the fact is, even engineering has a good engineering has a big component of trial and error. Yeah. So trial and error, in a certain often, will uh, give us a better final product than pure theory alone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But come, coming back to the to the age reversal. So I'm interested. How do you want to actually measure age reversal? How do you measure that? Well, so there are various biomarkers, which I think are convenient for academic experiments, but the ultimate measure of age reversal is, um, is functional, mm -hmm. medical. And so we, we've adopted the, you know, these eight different disease categories that have nothing in common other than that they are age related diseases. And so if you can, decrease the probability of succumbing to those diseases. They, they can be, you can artificially induce the disease or you can let it naturally occur in a pre-aged animal or pre-aged human. Um, that's, that's, that's the bottom line is you want to, to not one disease because you do one disease and you could have, you know, overfit your, 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 uh, functions to just deal with that disease. But if you get multiple diseases, then you're probably on the right track. Right. That's our measure. Mm -hmm. In this context, I'm, I'm not sure, what do you think about so-called epigenetic clocks and to use them to measure the aging process? Let, let me just explain for our viewers who, what, what, what I'm talking about. Let's imagine like we have a DNA strand. Yeah, this is our uh, base pairs of the DNA on one large strand. What we have there is what can happen that so-called epigenetic marks of DNA methylation patterns, they can attach to the DNA. Yeah? on different uh, points on our DNA and switch our genes on and off. So these are specific patterns. We can measure these patterns easily nowadays. But sometimes what happens during the aging process, something can go wrong. And then you have maybe a wrong epigenetic mark at some point. And again, we can measure this. So what happens is a lot of scientists, and uh, which is also actually based a lot of, of, of the work I had in this field, also on Alzheimer's, we can identify these patterns and see if with age something changes. And of course, if we do then apply age reversal, let's say in a model uh, animal system, we can then measure accordingly if we look at these patterns if the aging process goes back to the younger state or if it progresses or is at a steady state system. And of course, we can measure it for epigenetic therapies, meaning we can maybe remove certain epigenetic marks, which switches then genes again on or off. 
what what do you, what do you think about these methods the epigenetic application in aging aging reversal well essentially everything that we do in our lab is related to epigenetic therapies whether they're cell autonomous or cell non-autonomous whether they spread or not they're epigenetic um, and that's in contrast to another school of thought which is that aging is about damage and you need to fix the damage our theory is that if you fix the epigenetics the young cells will take care of the damage as they do you know uh, in in uh, in children so um, so we're very big on epigenetics we we do measure epigenetics occasionally like i said the, the biomarkers which are epigenetic biomarkers are useful in academic research but we know as synthetic biologists many of those uh, markers that you show the uh, on on the dna um, you are not causally related to a disease they're not causally related even to a gene that seem to be involved in the disease. And so that means they're, mark they're literally markers uh, that are correlated, but not causative. And that means that we could, but synthetic biologists clip those things off and nothing will happen. Conversely, we could fix the epigenetics. So, you know, like uh, with the Yamanaka factors, just set it back to zero and then set those epigenetic marks back as if it were an old uh, cell. And so I think that because they're not causally related, we want something that is uh, on the direct path to what we care about, which is medical outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, you want again use our cells' inherent uh, ability to repair itself to get us back to a younger state. To the extent that repair is the problem. I mean, I think there are many other problems that is caused by being in the wrong epigenetic state, meaning old epigenetic state uh, that are not necessarily due to damage. Uh, in fact, you could have a completely pristine genome, no DNA damage whatsoever, uh, and still die of old age because that's how powerful the epigenetics is. But it isn't necessarily related to these marks that everybody uses as their right. clock. It's a great clock. It's precise to about plus or minus two, two years. But it isn't causal, and that means that you can, as you start messing with aging, uh, you can get a disconnect between the non-causal biomarkers and what you actually care about. So, that, so we we just have humility as synthetic biologists that we know we can do, we can disconnect these two. So we better have to be careful. Right. But that that brings us back to an old question of evolutionary theory: is is aging pre-programmed in our Almost certainly. Almost certainly. You look at uh, a yeah. mouse lives about two years, even even if you protect it from predators. Uh, and a bowhead whale lives about 200. And now, admittedly, there's a lot of differences between them, but uh, it's clear that generation after generation, the whole family dies at two years if they're mice, and the whole family lives, you know, 150 plus years if they're whales, or bowhead whales. So that's that's fairly uh, likely, and and then and then these experiments that show aging reversal um, also indicates there's some program there so where you don't have to change the DNA; you just have to change the way the DNA is regulated. Right, Daryl, you wanted to ask something. Then? Yeah, George. I mean, you're a very very famous vegan as well, so uh, it's kind of interesting to get your 
put your thoughts on Bill Gates's advocation of synthetic meats and uh, and how to avoid climate disaster, as he talks about. But it'd be interesting to sort of get an understanding of, of uh, one one aspect of this is is would, would a vegan actually eat synthetic meat? Uh, I know that sounds a bit strange, but uh, no, it's a gr- it's a good question because it depends on why you're vegan. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Many, there are many reasons that I could list, uh, some less obvious than others. So um, there's animal welfare, which is yeah. uh, one of them. Uh, there's um, which the the clean meats, uh, the vegan meats, was does solve. Um, there's zoonotic diseases um, like COVID-19, mm. swine flu, so forth. There's uh, um, the antibiotics that one needs for modern um, meat production. Uh, there's uh, resources like sun and water that, that require maybe 20 times more resources and sometimes fossil fuels also to produce meat. Um, and then there's health. And yep. my journey into veganism did start with health. Uh, it, it, my father and I have a cholesterol problem, and uh, <clears throat> and he 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 died as the consequences of a, a triple bypass and um, cognitive decline uh, due to low mm-hmm. oxygen. So, um, and that would not be solved by the clean meats. Uh, so. Like Bill, I, I, I am working on clean meats. I'm working with a couple of companies like um, Memphis Meats uh, to to produce these. But it's not yet absolutely clear that they can be produced for less cost than plants. Mm. And plant-based meats, like Beyond Burger, for example, is an absolute terrific tasting thing. I have a lot of my carnivore friends who like it better than regular burgers. So uh, wow. we don't need to go to clean meat to to solve the global problem. In fact, uh, there are quite a few people that are basically vegan because they can't afford anything yeah. else. Um, there's some people can't even afford uh, vegetables that are good enough to give them uh, vitamin A. And so a million people a year die right. of blindness due to vitamin A deficiency. And and this, one of the solutions that's been um, now approved is uh, is golden rice, which mm. is an engineered form of rice that has lots of... It's so much vitamin A, you can see it in the color of the grains of rice. So um, we need we need solutions. I agree with Bill, but we need solutions. Um, I think a lot of them are going to come from more efficient crops, more efficient use of land that isn't currently um, fully uh, utilizing. A lot of it is dedicated to meat production when it could be dedicated to food. Uh, I agree. You know, it's more efficient food. Yeah, I agree because I, I I kind of think that if we've got a population that's that's rapidly increasing over the next you know hundred fifty to hundred years or so, the implications to the population and how how land's used to, to feed people uh, is it sustainable and and so to me it's kind of interesting what he talked about uh, and and the the amount of the, less resources that we needed to actually produce it was kind of fascinating to myself. I was it, I was I didn't really think about it at the time until he actually wrote, brought those points up. But, but the, I was thinking more about, uh, crop erosions or, 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 or soy based plants, uh, for cultivations and, and instead of cash crops or, or biofuels being replaced for cash crops and that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't really think about it in terms of feeding, feeding the world's population. And, um, yeah, it, it was a sudden realization that we, there is a dichotomy between 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 these two things, and uh, and genomics can answer that question too. But as you say, 
you know, transgenics or transgenomic crops and things like that, um, how we can actually do that. But transgenic so yeah. crops, is, uh, we have a problem in the in the public perception, I think, that changing natural products is usually seen as negative. What what do you think, George? How how can we deal with this? I don't. I it's it's all relative. It's all relative. So it's it's whether the benefits outweigh the risks. Mm -hmm. Even if if the benefits are low, then the risks have to be zero, uh, which is almost never achieved mm -hmm. with any realistic technology. And I think the thing is, there are many GMOs for which there's very little. Um, uh, discussion. There's very little worry. For example, moving the insulin gene from a human into a bacterium and then massively producing millions of liters of, of bacterial produced insulin, that's fine. You know, that's a GMO that, that every diabetic in the world uses. Um, and all their families and friends are very supportive of it. Uh, the problem with GMO foods, you know, tomatoes and strawberries and things like that is they don't provide much to the customer mm. and many of the original much of the original pushback were, was from wealthy europeans um, who particularly don't see an advantage um, and they see the disadvantage of an economic disadvantage of having a monopoly like monsanto from the united states uh, impacting a european uh, economy. And so I totally sympathize with that point of view. If it doesn't help you much and it has a potential imp economic impact, then you should push back. Um, but things like golden rice, GMO mm. insulin, that sort of thing, that there are human lives at stake. And I really think that that's a, a completely different uh, issue. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. The uh, same thing probably goes for climate change. There's a lot of human well-being and lives at stake. And so a little bit of well-placed and well-tested uh, engineering could um, um, have a much bigger impact than switching our lights from tungsten to LED uh, or switching from SUVs to bicycles. I mean, even if the entire planet of humans uh, stopped using fossil fuels and, and, and you know, behaved very well, um, there still is four, that's, that's 10 gigatons of carbon. That's only 10 gigatons of human carbon, but there's 1400 gigatons at risk just due to the process, uh, natural processes that were initiated by our ancestors mm. when they killed off all the herbivores in the Arctic. So we need to be sequestering carbon, not just not putting more up there. Uh, yeah. So most of the proposals, uh, are, anyway, I think that there, there is some fairly low cost, low risk, methods of, of using uh, engineering to um, to reverse climate change, not just slow it yeah. down. That's a perfect segue to my next question. You're, you're talking about uh, a carbon footprint and you mentioned already that uh, we humans probably also played a big role in the extinction of certain animals like the woolly mammals. Yes. And one of your projects that you started several years ago is to bring back the woolly mammoth. Can you can you explain a little bit what this project is about? Well, it's more about uh, not so much about bringing back an animal uh, species, but saving endangered species, uh, the Asian elephant, and also restoring a vibrant ecosystem 
in the Arctic. So the Arctic used to be a beautiful mm -hmm. grassland that was very good at sequestering carbon. Each growing season it would add another layer of roots until it was 500 meters thick, which is about 500 times thicker than most of the tropical rainforests. Mm -hmm. And so most of the carbon in the world is stored in the Arctic because grass was so good at it. But those got, when the herbivores got um, uh, extinct due to human and other forces, uh, that changed from a beautiful grassland into, into these scraggly trees that are very dark and they bring in heat through their albedo, their darkness. And then they also um, pile, they allow snow to pile up, which protects the minus 40 from getting down into the soil. Mm. Um, and so the warm soil stays warm because it's downy blanket. And, and, and then the, the grass is, is better at photosynthesis. For, so for those three reasons, uh, a res restoration of that fairly recently uh, lost, maybe in the last 10, 20,000 years, um, restoring it back to that would have huge benefit, not just for the ecosystem, but for uh, human uh, efforts to sequester carbon. And this would this could be done with very low or maybe zero um, belt tightening on the for the consumers. It's just it's just encouraging a, a natural process in the world rather than having small effects due to uh, you know changes in how you use energy and transportation. Right. I'm all in favor of consciousness raising via all of these uh, human carbon footprint related things, but I think much bigger than our carbon footprint is what we can do by sequestering carbon and reversing the back to pre-industrial uh, levels. Hmm. But we still have the technical problem. Let's, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. Obviously, just bringing back extinct species is extremely difficult, if at all possible. We don't know that yet. So, so far, we haven't really brought back anything. Well, we brought back two viruses. Um, it's not really a mammal, <laughs> certainly. I think we have and enough we, we, we brought, virus. We brought back frozen, two frozen mammals. Uh, a black-footed ferret was 32 years frozen mm. and uh, a horse that was uh, um, frozen for 40 years. Um, Problem is mammoths were frozen for a lot longer than that and under less than ideal circumstances. So we probably can't do that kind of de-extinction event, uh, but we can do it. Uh, what, we, what we can do is something maybe even better, which is we can make a cold resistant elephant that has, you know, dozens of genes from the woolly mammoth. So we've de-extincted the genes rather than the species. Plus we can add in genes that protect elephant against modern uh, problems like uh, there's an extinction level virus called EEHV. It's killing off uh, the baby elephants. Uh, we can make them resistant to that. We're getting very good at making, I mean, either by vaccines or CRISPR or something like that. Mm. Uh, and we can also make them poacher resistant. That sounds funny that you can genetically engineer an organism to be poacher resistant, but it turns out there's, um, we know how to make tusks either very long or very short. So you can make them much long, many times they're the size of their head, or there's natural variants that occurs occasionally in, in natural populations where they're almost invisible. And so you can make it so you could dial it up and down. Uh, so if they're out in the wild where they could be poached, they have short tusks. And if they're um, in a well secure, protected environment, they could have long tusks. And so I think those three things, so those cold resistance, virus resistance, and poacher resistance, 
um, is better than just bringing back the mammoth. It'll look like a mammoth, it'll behave like a mammoth, it'll love minus 40 degrees, um, but it will it'll have all these uh, genetic advantages over uh, current Asian elephants. They will basically be an Asian elephant, so we will be preserving that species as well, a very close relative to the Asian elephant, it would be a hybrid. I think, I think it's called proxy species, right? So you are basically mimicking what's already or what was extinct. Right. It's a very it's a very close proxy because the the mammoth, the Asian elephant, are very very similar. For, right. So, for example, uh, I mean, it's not like a proxy species where we bring in a polar bear or something, it, which is a carnivore, not a herbivore. Yeah, it's much closer. In fact, baby elephants often are covered with woolly hair, yeah. and um, and when you have elephants up in Canada, they love to play in the snow and they will go and they'll break into the ice of the lakes and swim in the, in the cold. So oh. they really are, are very close to being mammoths. You just need a little nudge. <laughs> but, but to bring them a little bit closer with genetic technologies, I mean, I, I, th I saw some photos of you where you went Basically, I don't know if you dig them, dug them out yourself, but you got some bones back from yes, uh, the I, those, those I got myself. Yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, well, well actually, it was much? a combination. The frozen ones, uh, other people got, but the non-frozen ones, I I got myself. Yeah. Fantastic. That must be fun. But how much DNA can you still get out of those? All, all you, you, those you, don't, you, you only need trace amounts of DNA. So you know we can. In humans, we can sequence DNA from a single cell and get a pretty accurate uh, image uh, of it. Uh, for ancient DNA, it's hundreds of times less efficient, but you still only need, uh, you know, a uh, few, you know, fingerfuls of, hand, of, of sand-like uh, tissue. So. Uh, that's not a problem. And then you get it into the computer and you reconstruct it and you compare it to elephant DNA and you can see the differences. And there are very few differences. It's like three differences between elephants and, and uh, um, mammoths that, that give you blood that's very uh, cold tolerant. And that's been proven. Been, the gene has been resurrected um, by the Campbell group and, and, and it's been shown to be cold resistant. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we know those processes. We know how to get the ancient DNA, how to sequence it into the computer, and then go from the computer to, to fresh synthetic DNA, and then test that that's, that, that gene pro provides cold resistance. And there's there's another gene set of genes that provide cold resistant nerve endings, uh, and and so on. We, we're we're get you know we're we're getting deep knowledge of you know what causes the fat containing lumps on their back and head, fat all over their body, the thick, the thick long hair. All these things are, are, are things that are known both from studying elephants and other species. Mm. Um, so that's, that's making great progress. Well, yeah. How long does it take? I mean, obviously elephants, they are not uh, grown in labs like mice. So it, it takes probably quite a long time to really adjust, modify their genome. To the well, environment. well, interestingly, uh, the modification of the genome can be very quick uh, because we don't have to grow, uh, uh, we don't have to go through a whole elephant generation to test it. So we can, um, many things, the, the two things I mentioned already can be tested uh, in the laboratory mm -hmm. um, with 
elephant and mammoth genes side by side, but without making a, a whole elephant. But even if we make a whole elephant, a lot can be tested, you know, on a two-year-old uh, elephant. Uh, it doesn't. You don't have to wait until it's. Uh, I mean, they live to 60 years old. You don't have to wait that long. Um, uh, they are, you know, the females are reproductively fit around nine years old. Um, mm -hmm. The gestation period is 22 months. Now, we've kind of de-risked this whole process as well. You can do very similar experiments in pigs. And so we've, we've now got pigs that have been engineered at 42 different genetic locations. So 42 changes, which is a lot, uh, you know, typically like when you're doing human genetic engineering with gene therapy, that's one gene at a time or maybe two. Mm. But in pigs, we've done 42. We call it pig version 3.0. They're intended for uh, organ transplants, and we have about 2,000 of them now. So, so that's, that's kind of proof of concept that we can make herds of these engineered uh, organisms. And another precedent example is the bison. The bison was down almost extinct uh, in the wild, and now we have um, 500,000 of them, half a million worldwide. So that's a, it shows that we can really grow, you know, once we have the right uh, genetic material and the right plan, we can uh, re put them back in the wild. Wow, that's fascinating, fascinating. But I wonder, so, I mean, you almost, I guess, like 80% of your life, you dealt with biology, with the looking at the, our core, uh, on our DNA, what we are made of. Do you think that the development of life on Earth is very specific to our planet, or can a similar system have evolved somewhere else? I wonder. Well, uh, hmm. you know, the answer is an open question. It's, it's, a, it's a question that can be answered in a variety of ways. I mean, we're looking for signals, you know, uh, looking for planets that are Earth-like and have atmosphere that are consistent with life, and that type of study is getting better and better every year. We're also simulating it in the laboratory. We're asking, you know, how special does the environment have to be and how fast can it go? So if it can go within sort of the time of a PhD thesis, then you, you've got accelerated evolution, accelerated origin of life from inorganic materials. Hmm. So that's another line of research, but neither of those have yielded anything that's convincing enough that, that uh, I think we need to consider the possibility that we're the only um, intelligent life in the universe, possibly the only life in the universe. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, but it but it could be just the opposite. It could be we're completely surrounded by uh, alien life. Um, we just it, it is one of our most embarrassing gaps in our scientific knowledge is whether we're alone uh, out of you know trillions of stars, uh, whether we are completely surrounded and we don't even see it. Right. But on the other hand, I mean, one thing that obviously you are an expert heard on is to, on, on synthetic biology, basically building something from scratch. So where do you think, where are we going with these things? Can we, can we design life in the Petri dish and come up with something completely new? that we have never seen before? 
Uh, well, this is challenging. Uh, mo most of the synthetic biology is are small variations on on uh, existing genomes. Um, you know, deleting a few genes, rearranging them. Um, probably the most radical change <coughs> is what we've been doing is changing the genetic code, mm. where every every gene is changed in multiple ways. Um, that still is very closely related to the original. Um, the, probably the thing that will come closest to something really new is this original life type of uh, study where you're really starting from chemistry. And you can either start with the chemicals that we think existed on uh, early Earth or early universe and then go from there. Or we can just use a whole other set of chemicals that we think could also evolve life, and that's a, those are two interesting pathways, and they're the most likely ones to turn up something that's not related um, to the DNA and RNA of our current world. Uh, then, then there's then there's you know there's motivations for making new things that are functionally new, that, that that are based on bi biology's amazing ability to do this kind of atomic precision um, engineering or help us do that. Uh, and you know, one of my pet projects is trying to send a new life form, uh, a synthetic biology form, to uh, Proxima b, which is 4.7 million, uh, sorry, 4.7 light years away, um, and then have it construct a communication channel back. It's like I just uh, uh, participated in, the, in the, a breakthrough Starshot uh, conversation on that. Uh, so. That's a great synthetic biology challenge. Make another synthetic biology challenge is making cells resistant to all viruses or resistant mm -hmm. to all pathogens. Uh, do you think? Uh, do you think an ancient, I guess, reference genome, an ancient human reference genome, would be a, uh, an interesting thing to get to, in the sense of that that could be the origin of? I mean, okay, I'm 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 humanist here in terms of in terms of uh, bias, but. Could it be an interesting segue into how diseases evolved and how how a variant came about? Can I, I know it's hard in terms of creating an ancient reference human gene, and, and, and again, where would, it, where would where would the origin of that be? But equally, it'd be interesting to see how we've started here and got to here, and, and could actually map out where those mutations are and and, so, where, and how they kind of evolved. No, I think that's an interesting uh, point, uh, and we are doing that in a certain sense. We have the complete, nearly complete genome of humans, of Neanderthals, and of chimpanzees, and we can do that three-way comparison. Um, and we can even correlate the small change differences between us and Neanderthals would probably look like us if we dress them up properly. Uh, but the, the, those small changes, uh, we can correlate with diseases. And there yeah. are some diseases of us. So many, peop many people in the world have Neanderthal DNA. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm one of them. Uh, I have like 3% Neanderthal DNA, which is not a record. But, um, and you can associate diseases with the chunk of the Neanderthal version of that DNA. Um, I, you don't, if you wanted to uh, do functional tests, uh, so you can make uh, highly engineered cells, and those highly engineered cells could even be used in um, organ transplants. So just like we're making pigs for organ transplants, we are also making um, human organs derived from human 
pluripotent stem cells from my left arm mm -hmm. uh, into, and, and those organs to be transplanted, and then you can see how they function. So you could, in principle, have uh, an organ that has even more Neanderthal DNA than I have and see how it functions. Um, I think that will probably uh, happen. Mini Neanderthal, that, that would be fascinating, yeah. It's, 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 if they have, if they're perceived to have advantages where they would be resistant to a pathogen uh, or be more robust in some uh, medical sense, then we will probably do it. Also, it's unknown just how much Neanderthal DNA there is in our yeah. population and Denosovin. So there's a, another uh, ancient species that's about as far away from us as Neanderthal is, but also far away from Neanderthal. And our, and our current population has a mixture of all these. So in principle, um, just by, um, um, you know, some uh, marriage uh, arrangements, you could get people that are highly enriched for those two variations and, and depleted for the modern uh, DNA, and they would probably be fine. You know, right. So we, we, in theory, we could partially breed out our new Neanderthal and Denisovan lines back yeah. where they came from, right? Yeah. So there, there are, there are people who might find that desirable from, from their family, you know, what their family origins. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think the government is going to interfere with their personal choices. Yeah, that's probably because there are a lot of those Neanderthals specifically working in government. Exactly. Yeah. No, and in but, those um, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but hopefully they won't interfere either way. They won't make us do it and they won't stop us from doing it. Right? Yeah. Right, it's, right. it's a personal choice who you marry. Uh, which government are you talking about, about Axel? <laughs> or, uh, or, or, talking about personal choices. So obviously <laughs> technology, I mean, everything on, on our planet changes with our technologies mm. and so george where, where do you see us as a species developing with all these new technologies crispr nanotechnology and, and how we can modify ourselves in theory well, well we're modifying ourselves more than in theory uh you know mm -hmm. I, like i said we're hybrids or with electronics we uh, are superhuman in the sense of we're resistant to everything we're vaccinated for, yeah. um, which, which our ancestors would have uh, killed to get that superpower yeah. uh, to be resistant to um, um, smallpox and polio and mumps and measles and all that stuff. Um, a huge fraction of babies and mothers died yeah. during birth uh, in our ancestors. So, so we're superhuman already. Uh, but, um, many of the, th but because we're hybrids, because we get so much benefit from phones and from airplanes and we don't need to be super strong or super fast because mm. we're not going to be stronger or faster than a jet. Uh, so we might as well face the fact we're going to be a hybrid. Um, so what's left is really being is, um, aging and intelligence, cognitive, mm. uh, ability. And I think we are changing ourselves cognitively, partly because we have such an old population now. We're, we're terrified of cognitive decline mm -hmm. um, in ourselves and in our parents mm -hmm. and um, friends. And so we're working hard. Uh, you, you mentioned, Axel, that you worked on uh, Alzheimer's. I, my group works on Alzheimer's uh, uh, and other uh, neurodegenerative diseases I mentioned in, in dogs. Uh, so, um, 
the consequence of that may be we may over maybe overdo it. You know all, that if we get good enough at preventing cognitive decline, that might be also result in cognitive advancement. Hmm. And and our species has no particular problem with cognitive advancement. That's the whole idea behind you know schools and uh, um, books and and hmm. that sort of thing, computers. Um, but this would be a little different. This would be something that's uh, more but biological. We, but we see also the negative effects. So I think there were recent studies that showed that we have in, in recent years actually a decline in the average IQ in, in younger people, particularly. So, which may be. Yeah, there, well, there's a, there's a, there's a, I think the jury is still out. I mean, there's the Flynn effect where we see an increase in, in IQ with time. And then there's smaller effects that, that fluctuate from year to year. Yeah. Um, which, you know, dependent on cultural effects and, and all, there's all kinds of confounding effects in IQ tests. And IQ doesn't necessarily even measure what we care about. Mm. But, um, I think we should pay attention though. I mean, we should, you know, is it, is it nutrition? Is it, uh, you know, uh, failure to vaccinate? Is it, uh, you know, there are many reasons. It cannot reasons be something why. evolutionary, right? So I would probably, argue that, that probably our ancestors probably not in the conventional some, sense. If you would, if you would take some person with a time machine out from 50,000 years ago and would transplant this person into our current time, they will probably be do just fine. They would they would do fine, but they would probably not be uh, as tall as we are um, mm. because there's been a, a, an increase in height with with time that has to do with the nutrition of our grandmothers and mm. our mothers, um, and that probably also has to do something to do with our cognition. Um, and you know, there's some things that take a few generations to kick in. So, time machine will will bring people back that are uh, are different, but still fine. They'll be they'll be uh, they would fit into society just fine. Uh, I think it's all about it's all about investment in the in, in our in our in our youth and our young youngsters. Make sure Absolutely. that there's education in and health and activity uh, in many ways, and 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 making it so that the planet is better than you. You know, you leave the planet uh, better than you 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 were born into it, basically. Talking about making things better, George. And do you have any advice for young people who want to go into science? So what is, where do you think they should go? What, what are hot topics? Like imagine you would be young, you would be 16, 17 years old and you would decide, hey, I want to do something to change the world. What, what area would you go into? Uh, well, I think uh, all sorts of space related science mm -hmm. is important, especially biological uh, components that there's a, a lot of emphasis on the physics but we need uh, but we need a lot more studies on on human adaptation to radiation to gravity to um, uh, microbial uh, problems of, uh, and psychological problems of having close quarters um, so that's one field uh, another field that I think is is ripe is uh, applying uh, AI machine learning to um, to, to medical and, and biological problems. Like we, we've published uh, four papers on applying it to protein design. Proteins are like, these are the nano structures at work. And so that combination of using big clunky computers to help us make, 
you know, tiny, more efficient ones would be be quite cool. Mm. Uh, and then almost anything having to do with synthetic biology is is going to be very impactful. Everything we've been talking about in this session, um, I think, is is uh, every because the rate of change is so steep, and because uh, we have exponential improvement in these technologies, every few years you get a level playing field where all mm. the incoming young people have. A slight advantage over the old people because they have a fresh mind and they can they can see how it is <laughs> while the old folks are still trying to protect their turf and keep it the way it was you know keep the technology so that they're comfortable with it while young people come in and they have an advantage so look for fields where there's an exponential change in in cost and quality and and, mm. and qualitative changes and i think synthetic biology is a perfect example of that reading mm. and writing dna not yeah, a very good idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, just before we close, I would be, I'm curious about, again, like if, if you would start again, if, if you look back at your career, do you think there were mistakes you made? What, what would you do differently? Or what should a young scientist look out for when going out to the university and should they stay at university? Should they maybe go and start a company instead? I mean, there's so many options. Um, I think it, it varies from person to person. You have to make your personal choices. I mean, a lot of young people have to do something from a financial standpoint. So mm -hmm. I felt a lot of pressure when I was in college to finish college early and, and get a job. And the job that I chose was graduate school, but at least it went from me paying the college to the college paying me. Hmm. Uh, and so I, so I finished in two years, mainly for financial uh, motivation. Hmm. And I think that, so that's, that's one of the things that varies from person to person is, are they, how, how far into debt are they willing to go in order to get a better, <laughs> yeah. you know, better education? Now, a lot of education can be achieved on the fly. So I would say almost everything I do now, I didn't have a course in. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, for example, mostly what I do is engineering. I, I'm in the National Academy of Engineering, um, but I never took a course in engineering. Uh, I do a lot of computer programming, but I, I had so much computer programming before I got to college, I didn't take any courses in computer programming. And the list goes on. So I don't, I don't want to over or underemphasize under the importance of formal education. It's a great place to meet people. You know, so even though, uh, you know, Bill Gates, uh, didn't finish and, and, uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, didn't finish their degrees at Harvard. They did take advantage of Harvard and that they met some very key people that helped them launch, uh, you know, two of the biggest, uh, uh, social and economic, uh, phenomenon in history. So I think even a year in a, in a elite university, can be extremely helpful uh, to getting to meeting people and getting oriented to your priorities. Um, yeah, so. Wow, yeah. So, George, imagine you got a lot of money, someone would throw money at you. What would be the next big project you would work on? Uh, well, I, you know, I think if you get, some people uh, get too much money. I'm not saying that I would get too much money, but some people, when they get too much money, then they, then they become obsessed with maintaining it and, and, mm. uh, keeping it away from other people and things like that. Uh, 
So that's that's one thing to be cautious of. There, in fact, a lot of lottery winners are some of the saddest people on the planet. Mm-hmm. That said, I have already have some fairly, um, you know, uh, some hobbies that would benefit from. Uh, I mean, serious scientific problems. So we've mentioned a lot of them, which is um, dealing with uh, diseases of aging. That's not cheap, although uh, um, getting. Uh, to other planets, ideally even outside of our solar system, mm-hmm. is going to take some money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, safely and uh, thoughtfully uh, engineering ecosystems to restore them to a better place and do carbon se- sequestration. That's something where a little bit of money could, res- in fact, all of these are examples where a little bit of money could have a, a big return. So mm-hmm. the, the question isn't what you would do with a lot of money, is how you would use a little money to save us trillions of dollars. Uh, you know, one of my pet projects is the bioweather map. I've mm-hmm. been advocating this for a couple of decades. Uh, it's like, it's analogous to weather map, um, where people get engaged, they, you know, the, the regular public looks at the weather in the morning to decide whether they're going to, you know, you know, walk or take the car. That it might prevent them from, you know, slipping and falling on the ice and hurting their hip and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same thing, you, you have life-threatening events that, that could be solved by a bioweather map where you decide mm-hmm. whether you're going to go to daycare or to your job based on what pathogens are there that morning or or you can see what's happening on global scale so you can make decisions uh, you know about travel and so forth so i think we need bioweather map the cost of that is large but it's thousands of times less than what we're spending on just one disease so this would save us from many diseases mm-hmm. just one disease is costing us 16 trillion dollars in the united states alone and and our preparedness has an impact because, so mm-hmm. for example, China and other Asian countries were prepared and they had 400 times fewer deaths per capita, per mm-hmm. capita. Right. So, so we need to buy a bioweather map uh, and it's cheap compared, you know, it's like if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Uh, so most of the things that I would spend money, uh, things I am spending money on um, uh, are aimed at, at, at saving uh, us from, you know, uh, painful, uh, uh, horrible uh, uh, diseases and saving us money. That's a very good strategy. I like that. That's what, what we do too. Yeah. So, Daryl, do you have any uh, last questions or... No, not really. Only, only to say that George and I worked together many years ago at Gnome. So, um, yeah. It was a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Gnome, Gnome lives on in uh, companies like Veritas and Nebula Genomics. Yeah. Um, we, we will not be satisfied until everybody who wants one can get their genome. Indeed. Uh, indeed. Absolutely. And, and nice for that matter, infectious disease as well as inherited disease. So uh, thank you for your help with Gnome. Take? <laughs> I, I, th- I noticed that we have probably a slowdown in getting genome sequencing adopted for the public so of course we had with 23andme coming out like i don't know how old they are 10 years 12 years um that in recent times it, it, it slowed down a little bit people are i think the early I, I think what has slowed down are things that are ancestry related hmm. 
Um, but what it's picking up is whole genome sequencing, which is much more medically related. Mm. Uh, and so uh, if you, there are some things that are somewhere in between where you get a little bit of medical information. But what we really want is the whole deal. We want the whole genome. Um, yes. We want a few other omics that, you know, that have to do with infectious disease and immunology. But that will provide us with much better preventative medicine. And preventative medicine is much less expensive much less painful, many fewer visits to the hospital. Um, exactly, so exactly. That's where we're going. So that means people get sequenced, get vaccinated, and stay healthy. Absolutely. Well. <laughs> yep. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was My a pleasure, pleasure yep. talking to you. Um, and I'm looking forward to fantastic projects we can do together in the future yeah thank you so much for coming on our show yeah sure thank you. Thank and you. Uh, all the best to you stay safe yeah avoid okay. the uh, avoid the pandemic yeah and uh, thank you so much okay take okay. care yeah <laughs> Ah, you again. You know, the podcast is over, right? Mm. Oh. But coming back to Aristotle. Aristotle raised a crucial question. The possibility of a radical life extension or even immortality. He believed that any physical entity is composed of opposite and uh, conflicting elements. According to him, any such entity must be in a constant process of change, and therefore cannot be preserved like this one, as is for a long time. Thus, a living organism is fated for ultimate destruction, for it contains in itself antagonistic forces and elements that mutually annihilate each other and thus destroy the entire body. This could be epigenetic markers or other molecules that break down. Similarly, Greek physician Galen emphasized that um, life could be prolonged but was of the opinion that death is inevitable as the body deteriorates of itself. In other words, we have to face the impossibility of our body's preservation beyond a predetermined time limit, at least in a living form. As we can see here, the Otocera is still preserved. Uh, to keep it preserved, I will put it back to the shelf where it belongs. You don't have to watch me doing this. Uh, you can switch off, right? Go. Oh. But before you do, please help me out with this and uh, subscribe to the show and uh, press the like button. And of course, if you watch this on YouTube, 
please press also the bell icon so that you'll get notified whenever something new comes up from the late night science show. <sighs> well, that's it. Good night.